Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Pastor Talk podcast. We continue on on this series we're calling Presby What? Uh, we are thrilled to have you join us uh, wherever you are and uh, whatever time you've been able to make to join the conversation. We're thrilled about that. If you have uh, not been listening to the previous conversations, if you're just jumping in right here, welcome. We're glad that you're here. I do think, Clint, there would be some merit in going back and starting, maybe not if in the beginning if you don't have time for that, but I would at least listen to the Reformation history and the Presbyterian history pieces. I think those will help give some context to today's conversation. If you look at the title, you might not think right away, Presbyterian authority and practice, that this is going to be the most exciting conversation, though historically, and this is why I think those conversations that were previous matter, Clint, historically, the way that we govern ourselves has been a direct expression of some of the things that we believe about humanity. We are very sensitive to the idea of human sinfulness, that humans, if left to their own devices, will tend to pursue selfishness and pride. And so the structures of of governing, of ordering, the sort of process in which we seek to live out our faith in practice has been given a lot of thought. And so as we turn our attention to that today, uh, we'll try to make it as interesting as we possibly can, of course, uh, but also uh, we want to try to give you a little bit of a sense of the nuts and bolts of how things work and maybe a little bit of the, of the why they work that way. Yeah, I don't think it would surprise anybody, Michael, to know that Presbyterians have put a ton of thought into our theology into our worship, into church. But equally so, we have spent a great deal of time over the years trying to figure out the best way to be organized, the best way to be structured, the best way to accomplish things and get things done, not only at church level, but at the national level. How do we ordain officers? How do we train pastors? We... we probably could easily dismiss those things or, or maybe miss those things. But there is an enormous field of stuff that has to be navigated in order to be a denomination. And as we have lived into that, I suspect we've put as much time and effort in, and probably battles into those fronts as just about everything else that we've done. And they have a direct impact uh, on our day-to-day being the church. We may not always feel it in a place like right. Spirit Lake, but the reality is what we do up and down the structure of our denomination matters, and it it's in some level, at some level and in some way sets direction for us even here. Yeah, and as we start to look at this, we've decided just in terms of structuring it, we're going to talk from the top of the system down towards the local congregation. And I think as we do that, you're going to see not only are you going to see some of that uh, responsibility ladder of what, what happens as you go down the chain, but I think pretty quickly you're going to start to really have some resonances of, um, doesn't this sound familiar? And it's going to sound a lot like the U.S. governmental structure. It's not the exact same, but there's very much higher to lower structures with different responsibilities that check each other all the way down the chain. Um, and so this is not a foreign concept. That's the point I wanted to make, is that Presbyterians uh, aren't operating with some outlandish structure. In fact, some of 
the leaders of uh, the United States in its pre-U.S. form, pre-Constitution, were Presbyterians. And you, there, there's some conversation that happened there, though historically it's a little tenuous to what extent it was significant. But, but there, there was at least knowledge of the Presbyterian system as we even started to get a sense of how we would govern ourselves as a nation. Yeah, on the very optimistic end, there are people who say that the American pattern of government is built on or modeled after the Presbyterian system. I think that may be wishful thinking on our part, but the reality is that some of the same assumptions, some of the same considerations did build both structures, and they have some similarities. uh, We are governed by elected people. We do not have professional rulers in the Presbyterian church. A person is elected as we understand that they are called to serve in that moment. And so fixed terms, elections at every level, people who are commissioned to serve, sent on behalf of others. One of the differences probably just structurally, and and maybe it's helpful, Michael, to talk about some of the big assumptions that we make all the way up and down the ladder of Mm -hmm. our, our structure, our hierarchy, is that unlike democratic government where it's understood that your senator or your congressman is sent to their position to represent you, in the Presbyterian church, government is always to represent God. And so when we ask someone to go serve at some level of church, we are not asking them to do what we want them to do. In other words, they don't have to check back with the church and the church tells them how to vote we have this idea that that God is the one that they are accountable to, and that as God directs their conscience, they are free to vote, even in ways that perhaps their sending body wouldn't necessarily have as majority. And so uh, our system does have a little bit more of an individual flair, I think, than maybe the American government, which we're more used to in terms of, hey, we put you in office so you would do these things, and when you don't do them, then we'll get someone else. That's not supposed to be how it works in the church. Sometimes there is that pressure, but realistically, we've always said we come from a different angle. Yeah, and I think this is a cousin to that, Clint, that there's another distinction between your civic government and your religious organization administration in that we codify, we, we have literally written in our founding documents that that we are subject to the ordering of the Word of God, the leading of the Holy Spirit, the Great Commission. Uh, we, in fact, uh, did that study over the course of uh, the Lenten study a couple of years ago, two, three years ago, about the great ends of the church. That is literally written into the 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 core foundational documents of our structure. And the intention in that is purposeful. It's to say that we as a organization, as an administration, seek to remain humble throughout all time for the revelation of God in Scripture, that idea of reformed and reforming. And so the stuff that was written at the founding of the PCUSA, of the Presbyterian incarnation in the United States was never intended to be constant forever. It was never written in stone. The idea is that it will change as we have greater understanding of God's will, that it'll change to reflect what is needed for ministry. 
And that's not always been an easy thing, Clint. In fact, oftentimes we've had great disputes over uh, our structure uh, because some have said, you know, we need to continue as we have and others have tried to change it. But but we do have built in this idea that since God is the one who we seek to serve, everything should follow God's leading and not some first idea. And, and in the more civic context, you know, we might talk about the American ideals, freedom, liberty for all, right? These are the things that we appealed to. But in the Presbyterian governance, we don't appeal to these ideas. We appeal to the person of Jesus Christ, to the actual work of God that we seek to follow. And though that may be a nuanced distinction, I do think it matters. Yeah, I think it's important that the people who lived into our structure and gave it skin, gave it bones, gave it uh, a, a physical sense of how we practice it. I think it matters that they understood that we always, at best, have some cloudy understanding of God's leading. And so they left in our governance a flexibility, a, a way to change it going forward. It has. It was never intended as something handed down to say, this is what we will always do. And I think there's tremendous wisdom in that, the recognition that in our brokenness, we will always hopefully be stumbling our way forward into better ways of being the church, and our policies should be reflective of that. They should be adaptable. They should be changeable. We shouldn't be dragging them with us when we find that they no longer are the best way for us to move forward and be a congregation. And I think that we'll see I, we'll see some examples of that uh, that I think have happened even within the last couple of decades of ways in which the church has shifted some of what it does to try and be more responsive to the era in which it lives. And I think that's a I think it's a mark of faithfulness and wisdom on the part of our founders that they left us that kind of freedom. The only other thing I would mention, Clint, in terms of sort of overall themes uh, would be representation. Uh, we, we uh, by intention, seek for our structures of leadership to represent the largest uh, diversity that we possibly can. So there's a real commitment towards um, men and women being equally represented to whatever extent is possible. Uh, same with uh, racial diversity, though we have to be honest, uh, the PCUSA is not very racially diverse, so that kind of representation is not always present. But we do intentionally seek to find ways to bring as many people to the table as we possibly can. That's been a value. And another is we seek to, at every level of our governing structure, check and balance the power of the other levels. So you're going to find that there's no place in the structure that rules by fiat. Presbyterianism is different from certainly Roman Catholicism, where you have the Pope who can make decisions that affect the chain all the way down. There, our General Assembly can make decisions, but one would argue it doesn't have that kind of breadth of power. Um, we don't have bishops. There's not a single person who makes decisions about whether a pastor can or can't stay in a church. Um, our presbytery, which would be closer to that, still has some restrictions in that. We allow the congregations to make decisions. So I do think even related to some of our other sister denominations and church families, we have a more distributed 
organizational structure that has checks and balances across the whole. Yeah, and I would add to that, Michael, and it may be surprising to some people, the same is true with regard to the difference between laity and clergy. So in in our system, both serve in governance, both are asked to serve at governmental Mm -hmm. levels, and there's no preference. An elder vote is exactly worth what a pastor vote is. Elders have direct access to microphones and to submit propositions and and ideas the same as pastors do. And and there is a sort of equality in which we say in regard to governance, faithfulness in a church is not determined by one's office. Mm -hmm. And so elders, primarily elders, deacons at some level, but less Less, that's less true for deacons as you move up the hierarchy. But elders and pastors serve together as equals. And I think that, again, is a, is a mark in our system, which we can be proud of. Well, I think maybe we just start at the top and we start working our way down. Does that seem fair? Yeah, it does. So our top level of government is called General Assembly, and it's been known as that for, um, I think, for as long as we've been Presbyterian in the United States. And our General Assembly is our national body, and it's primarily made up of commissioners. There are smaller organizations called presbyteries. They have, based on their size, a number of commissioners they can send to General Assembly, Our General Assembly historically met every year. Currently, we've been on an every-other-year cycle, and that will likely continue. And every two years, our commissioners from throughout the country gather in various places, and they have, uh, for about a week, a meeting where they plow through the uh, pertinent work of the church. They have resolutions. Those governing bodies called presbyteries can submit resolutions if they have ideas of things that are important to them or changes that should be made or interpretations of things. And those things all have to be voted on. They vote on national and international issues, whether we are going to make stances and statements, whether we're going to be involved in programs. They can make changes to our our guiding document. So this is our book of order. Our book of order is... Um, the thing that we use to govern, it's kind of our rule book, so to speak. It's understood to be an expression of our theology, but it really is how we practice our life together being the church. That can be changed. If they want to change things like that, again, one of the, to your point earlier, Michael, one of the merits of our system, they can't simply do that. That has to then go back down the chain, and the presbyteries have to ratify the things that the General Assembly has suggested. So in those instances, they can make recommendations, but they cannot make changes. And uh, I, have you been to a General Assembly? I have not. I have. It is. So, uh, yeah. There's I, a lot happening there. I showed up without voice or vote. I was a spectator uh, to the whole affair. Um, Clint, so this is maybe a, a point to note that was when was the new Book of Order passed? 2017. 17. Okay. Um, no, not 2017. It was earlier than that. It was, I was, it, the new book of order was passed before I graduated seminary. So 2012, 2011, sorry. Within remembered history, we had a significant redraft of the book of order, mostly 
a simplification of the Book of Or that was prominent before. Um, and, and in that process, uh, we had a significant change in some of the prescription that was handed down throughout all of these different systems. The way that I name that is, when you went to seminary, the Book of Order was much larger than when I went to seminary. The Book of Order was about, I think, a third um, by the time they got done with the sort of restructuring of of everything. And so, the reason I bring that up when we're talking about the General Assembly is, I think the actual structural responsibility of General Assembly has slowly been changing over the years. In the uh, middle of the 20th century, the, the General Assembly was managing a rapidly growing denomination. Churches were thriving. Sanctuaries were being built. There was this huge emphasis on channeling money towards missions, towards international partnerships with other churches around the world. There's Presbyterian churches in Mexico and Africa. And the General Assembly was really passing resolutions and making connections across all of these things. But as the denomination uh, decreased in size, congregation size, and the actual population of Presbyterians, um, as we have less and less people, the, the General Assembly, I think, has had less of that sort of structural growth responsibility because there's not been growth. And in many ways, I think the General Assembly has um, continued on. And I want to be careful with my words here. I think the General Assembly often gives voice to a sort of denominational um, response to global and national issues. Oftentimes, we hear from people following a General Assembly, hey, did the Presbyterians just vote on an issue related to Israel or an issue related to uh, this particular social issue? And I think very much the General Assembly has continued on. Um, and I'm not sure if it's fair to say proportionally increased, but there certainly has been a continuance of sort of a national body stance on differing issues of the time. Yeah, I think that the thing that's happened in the Presbyterian Church has happened to most national organizations. They have become less national. And there was a time in which the General Assembly comfortably made policies that were intended to span the breadth of the Presbyterian Church. And I think that has gotten less true. I think that the Presbyterian Church has now introduced a, a more of a freedom at the lower levels for regional bodies to have the kind of authority to set their own direction. I think it has, as and we see this in very recent history clearly, as the country seems to become more divided over issues, it becomes increasingly difficult to make positions and policies speak for the entire range of those people. And so it seems to me that what the General Assembly has tended to do in recent history is to make recommendations that are then enacted at the local level. And 
practical examples of what that means. Who can be ordained? There was a time in which we said that was a national conversation. That has now become a regional conversation. What pastors and churches can do and not do in regard to, say, weddings, um, that was a national conversation. That's largely become a local Mm -hmm. conversation. And as those things have gotten regional, there is a different opinion whether that's a change or whether that's reverting back to what we used to do. There was a time when most of those decisions were local. And then as we grew, they became national. And now as we shrink, they seem to become regional again. And so some argue that it's us changing the way we do things. Others argue that it's returning to the way that we used to do things. I don't know if there's a clear consensus. It's probably both in some ways, and maybe the motivations aren't entirely clear for why it's happening. But I do think that the General Assembly, in some ways, Michael, has done exactly what you suggest. It has minimized, in a national sense, its governance role and perhaps maximized its uh, translation role, its trying to speak to the church, trying to connect the church with issues of society, both nationally and globally. And that hasn't been a welcome change in lots of people's mind, but I do think part of it is related to what we'll talk about in a few moments. It is hard right now in the in the era we live to run a very top-heavy <laughs> national kind of organization. We had a lot of luck with that when it worked and everyone was doing it. We did it longer than most people, and when others stopped doing it, we kept trying it, and we have found that it's just a cumbersome way Yep. to get things done. Yeah, and to speak directly to that, for some time I served in a group of people in our region who oversaw candidates who were going up for ordination. And very concretely, just as a practical example here, uh, back in the day when seminaries were full and there was significant competition, not I mean, there was, there's just a significant amount of interest in the pastorate. In that time, the national denomination had very stringent requirements that were passed all the way down to these local committees that really, your job was to follow the path that was set out. And if a candidate wasn't able to, if a person trained for ministry, rather, wasn't able to follow that path, your job was to really just close the door. But today, that process, though there are still national requirements, there are steps along the way that provide great flexibility. Oh, you can't go to that seminary. Well, this is allowed. Oh, you can't uh, study for that thing. Well, this is allowed. Um, There's just so much more flexibility and, and that really is a reflection. There are less people in the process. We recognize that we need to be flexible because some people can't go to a full-time seminary, and, and there are alternate ways. Some people aren't going to be a pastor full-time. They're going to be what we call tent maker. And so, right, it's just there's so many complexities that are now accounted for and so much regional authority in moving a person through to being a pastor that would have been completely unthinkable even 30, 20 years ago. Yeah, and— And consequently, it seems to me that in the last 10 to 20 years, 
the General Assembly has – I think about what makes people angry and, and what makes the average Presbyterian, at least in my context, unhappy with General Assembly. It has as much been their statements about things right. as it has been the things they do. The things they do have in some way been pushed down the ladder, and the statements they make tend to be the things that people react to, some people very positively, others negatively. But it's less their actions, I think, that have caught the attention of people in the last decade. And more often it is the stance that they take on behalf of the national church because in a church that's very diverse with a lot of variety in it, no stance is going to be big enough to make room for everybody. And some of us are always going to feel like that was great or no, that wasn't great. And that's the, that's the tension that the General Assembly lives with right now. Uh, we're going to move on from General Assembly. Before we do that, I do want to name a couple positives. Um, I do think sometimes General Assembly, as national bodies of all kinds, sometimes get a lot of flack. They are very much the place where the Presbyterian Youth Triennium is governed and managed, and that's this triannual every three years youth get-together. We've taken our youth there, Clint. I think largely it's a really well-run program and a great way that we as a denomination invest in our youth and our disciples. The General Assembly has some direct responsibility for some what may seem like structural boring things like the Board of Pensions, which is the organization that, that gives pastors and churches insurance and uh, life insurance, health insurance, uh, lots of different benefit packages. They do a really good job of taking care of pastors, though there's some struggles for congregations in the new era to be able to afford that. The General Assembly also oversees some of the international mission, Presbyterian Disaster Assistance, a great hour of giving. They're just these mission-oriented sort of things that could only make sense at a national scale that the General Assembly does well. And though there are people who would say, hey, we should do that different or we could do it more efficiently, I do think there are a number of things that the General Assembly and the larger national body organization does really well that it's worth noting. Yeah, absolutely. And the the other strength, I think, of General Assembly, Michael, is that because it's national, it gives us an opportunity to have a place to voice specific concerns and struggles. You know, the the reality of, say, Jamaica Press in inner city New York is, as you and I know, miles apart <laughs> from the experience of a Presbyterian F FPC in Spirit Lake, Iowa. And and without General Assembly, we could easily function in our two environments, really never knowing yeah. what was important and what was difficult in, in one another's context. We in Spirit Lake have no idea what it is to try and minister in the context of being on the border of Arizona and what it is to try and balance legal immigration and ministry to those who show up destitute and scared and vulnerable. That's not where we live. On the other hand, we know something about environmental issues and, and other kinds of things in our region that they're not going to know in Los Angeles. And so a place that puts us all together for better or worse is is good. I think there's lots of upsides in that. It makes us hear from one another, which isn't always comfortable, but it is beneficial. 
Yeah, and you can imagine the great struggle when you get all of those people at the table is with all of that happening, it's it's a loud cacophony and oftentimes it's a mess. So the idea of organization is you start breaking down into smaller regional units. And our next step in the system is just that. It's really sort of collecting people in a region so that with the idea being that there might be shared ministry and oversight in people who are in slightly more similar circumstances. Yeah, we call this our synod. And at the synod level, you're talking about a a significant regional body. Our synod is... Wisconsin, Iowa, Minnesota. Is that it? Uh, yes. So you're talking about synods that encompass several states, depending on the size of those states. Are you know not surprisingly, synods tend to be bigger out west because states are bigger out west. They're a little more dense to the east and in the Midwest. But you're talking about a large body. You're talking about lots of churches, lots of Presbyterians. And, and Michael, there's sort of a running joke in the Presbyterian world that people don't know what synods do. And there, there is some truth to that. Synods generally don't function as a governmental level. They're not real involved in policy setting, though they do have some management responsibilities over the presbyteries that are in their region. But I think what the synod perhaps does, the function it seems to me that they fulfill, is that they are in some sense a bridge between the General Assembly and the presbytery congregation uh, as as those things work their way down from the General Assembly to the Presbytery, the Synod exists not so much to govern, but to provide resources, to provide information, to help with clarification, to help with management, to help with administration. Um, and that happens, you know, mostly informally, I would think. Now, the other thing that the Synod does, and we offload a great deal of our regional mission to a Synod, and they they handle, it's often your Synod that's going to have working relationships with ministries that are bigger than a congregation can support. So um, large ministries of international mission, of local mission, of homeless care, uh, hospital systems. Synods often have connections with large missional agencies, and they help funnel interest and funds from congregations up through presbyteries and then to those. But those things generally don't reach the General Assembly level. They stay at that second tier. Yeah, if I was going to pick one word for synod, it would be resourcing. I think synods resource congregations in lots of different ways. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, that looks as simple as the um, synod provides training for presbyteries on issues that matter, trainings on maybe it's your insurance policies for churches in your presbytery. Maybe that looks like sexual ethics trainings for leaders at the Presbyterian church sort of pastor levels. Um, there, there are concrete resourcing uh, sort of programs there, I think the mission thing is resourcing congregations to have a mission larger than the footprint that they're that they can sustain themselves. I do think 
when you think of the title that we have here, you know, authority, I don't really think that synod bears a lot of authority mm-hmm. in, in the chain of Presbyterian leadership. They exist more in sort of that middle ground, which is where, you know, I think some of those jokes come from, Clint, is, you know, realistically, uh, the synod doesn't carry a lot of organizational weight. Uh, they're, they're a little bit more um, resourcing of these differing levels. And um, so, if you if you are looking for the organizational power structure, uh, there's not a whole lot of gravity in this synod. Though I, I think the case has been made that they offer a lot of usefulness. Yeah, and I think you know we'd want to be we want to be fair. And if there's someone listening who's in the synod structure, they may not appreciate this comment. But what the synod does tends to have very little impact on the day-to-day life of Presbyterians in a congregation. It, it's not that it doesn't affect them. It's that they're not going to know that connection. When the General Assembly makes a decision and that makes the news, a, a Presbyterian is going to probably hear about that and it may affect them. What the Synod does is, I think, largely off stage, And I, I would suspect that the average Presbyterian may not know what a synod is and almost certainly doesn't know what their synod does. Yeah, to put that concretely, Clint, I've only been a pastor for seven years, so maybe you've had different experience, but in that time in the church, I have had numerous people come and talk to me about things that have been said and done at the General Assembly, that they have sought me out to talk about that. I have not had a single conversation with anyone in the congregation ever about an action or decision made by the synod. So, I just think uh, the the gap between the General Assembly and the synod in terms of public, conscious, uh, public consciousness, excuse me, is significant. Yeah, absolutely. I think that leads us then, uh, Clint, if you're okay, to sort of that next step in the chain. You've got the General Assembly, then you have the synod, and the next step down is the presbytery, and we're starting to get into more finely um, focused geographical groups at this point. Um, There is only, to my knowledge, one non-geographical presbytery, um, and that is the Korean uh, churches in the United States. I want to make a correction, Michael. It turns out that uh, our synod is much bigger than we may have led people to believe, including the Dakotas. Nebraska, some others. Sorry, everybody west of us. May feel left out. So we apologize for that. Sorry, everybody west of us. Um, Yeah, so synods have a large geographic footprint, right? And presbyteries, to put that in conversation, our presbytery is northwest Iowa. Yes. And so now we have a we have multiple presbyteries in the state of Iowa. So we drop down very quickly in that conversation. And this body, the presbytery, is one that pastors and and leaders on session have regular contact with, whether that's meetings or its expectations. Um, This is now one that is very much a direct connection to the sort of governing life of a congregation. Yeah, I I would say that presbyteries really are very active in managing churches and resourcing churches. So this is really where I think you kind of the rubber meets the road in regard to the Presbyterian experience. If you've served 
at a Presbyterian church level, you have had probably some interaction with the Presbytery. If you've called a pastor, the Presbytery has been involved with that. If a church has let a pastor go, whether that was through good or bad circumstances, the Presbytery is involved in that. If a church has tried a project, wanted to raise money and taken a loan, the Presbytery has approved that. The 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 connection between the Presbyterian congregation is regular and is um, extensive. They're, they are connected. They're hooked together in lots of ways. And many, many people at the local church level have attended Presbytery meetings. They've served on Presbytery committees and task units. And so I, I think, Michael, that this is really, when we think about the Presbyterian church, when we think about the individual congregation, um, it is by far the presbytery that has the most impact at that level on ministry, on mission, on organization, and on administration. This is not 100% true, but I think it may get you in the ballpark. If you grew up Lutheran or Methodist or even Catholic, and you have some sense for what the bishop is and does, presbytery does a lot of the stuff that a bishop does. It's just a group of people who are together who represent that power instead of one person. Mm-hmm. The the presbytery is, as you've said, involved in those pastoral comings and goings in a way that other denominations, one bishop is responsible for some of that movement. And th- that's not the case in our system. We have a much more democratized sort of order so that First Pres in Spirit Lake combined with First Presbyterian Church uh, in Denison with First Presbyterian Church in Sioux City and you know Lakeside Presbyterian Church in Storm Lake. All of these churches together are sending people on some level so that we can have a shared checks and balance across each other. So if a church isn't doing well in one of those cities, um, the, the whole system and group of churches can ideally leverage the strengths of one another to help in that circumstance. Yeah, and it may surprise people, if you don't have a long background in Presbyterianism, it may surprise people to understand that the Presbytery is also the home of local pastors. So Michael and and my church membership is not at First Presbyterian Church. We as clergy belong to the Presbytery. We we were transferred into the Presbytery, uh, in your case, Michael, when you were ordained, in my case, from Texas, Grace Presbytery, where I served. And we get put on the roles, not of the churches we serve, but of the presbyteries in which we serve. And so pastors are understood very much to be in relationship and accountable to not only the congregation they're in, but the presbytery they serve, the larger body. And this connection is um, at times frustrating because it means you're always sort of dealing with a range of issues that are happening beyond your own church, but it's also very much life-giving because it it precludes the possibility that you could just build walls around your own ministry and do that. You You have to be in partnership with the larger body of faith, which we think is important historically and practically. Yet there is a sliding range of experiences with Presbytery, and unfortunately, the Presbytery in some moments functions a lot like the customer service number. You know, I think there's not many customer service agents that 
get people to call the number and say, I'm just so happy with your product. Yeah, you guys I'm are doing great. You did a great job. No, the people that call customer service are upset because the thing's not working and they need help. And by definition, things are messy and complicated. And, that, and Presbytery gets a lot of those phone calls. A church isn't doing well. The pastor's maybe not personally doing well or maybe not leading well. And so lots of phone calls get made in... I'm not going to say just crisis situations, but that certainly happens. Um, And so some people uh, very much feel like the Presbytery is sort of a little bit of a negative thing because a lot of their experiences have happened in negative contexts. But uh, we could, I mean, right here, the difference between our conversation about Synod and Presbytery, I can name a lot of the names of churches in our Presbytery, Clint. We had to do some guessing on the size of the Synod. It's just a reflection of, Oh, we engage quite a bit, multiple meetings a year. I know lots of the uh, people in Presbytery by name. I've served on committees with them. I've had many conversations with them a year, uh, sometimes once a month. So th- there's just a very much sort of cordial, collegial, working uh, relationship with the Presbytery that happens whenever you're in the local congregational leadership setting. If you're a congregant, I think on the other side of that wall, you've either served on the committee or you, if you know of Presbytery, it's probably happened in a not great context, generally. Yeah, and, and we should mention that the Presbytery, even those uncomfortable moments, the Presbytery really seeks to be a resource right. to the congregation in terms of leadership, in terms of finances. We would be remiss not to point out, Michael, that the equipment you're watching us use, you're listening to us and seeing us on equipment, that the presbytery helped us purchase, and arguably we might not have had right. without their help. So the presbytery resources congregations in many ways as they try to do ministry, and unfortunately that means stepping in when things aren't going well and trying to help. And when you try to help in a moment of crisis, not everyone is going to agree that you are helpful, but it comes from a good place. It's a place of connection between how we try to rule ourselves and and apply those guidelines and those rules and how we practice them. And for the most part, the Presbyteria, I think, in the working life of the church is kind of that safety net. They're not active. Our Presbytery is not trying to tell us what to do on a regular basis. But they do want to be connected. They do want to be a part of our ministry, and they very much want churches to move forward and make progress. And uh, unfortunately, that means that occasionally that relationship has some stress in it. Yeah, inevitably, the Presbytery is going to feel like a roadblock to churches that are at freeway speed, and the Presbytery is going to feel like a safety net for churches who aren't doing well. And First Presbyterian Church has already, we're, we're well past 100 years in existence. We've had those seasons in this, in this very congregation. So, what, what you, your relationship to Presbytery right now may change very radically in five or ten years. And it is, I think, Clint, uh, though sometimes it feels like an evil, at other times, it feels like a great good, and that's just by nature of what it's going to be. Yeah, and because presbyteries and churches, the, the place where they contact each other the most is probably involves pastoral relationships, right? Mm-hmm. So here's the tension. A church says, hey, we found this person. We love them. 
they served some church. We want them to be our pastor. The presbytery says, well, they're not Presbyterian. They've not studied Presbyterianism. They don't know anything about our system, and we don't know anything about them. We need to put the brakes on and have this conversation. And, and so we're not going to let you do that just yet. Now the church is upset. But from the presbytery, it comes from a place of concern. When we've seen these partnerships in the past, they generally haven't gone well. And you have people with vested interests on both sides. And it's always um, unfortunate. Anytime those kind of conversations come to places of, of tension and conflict, but Everybody involved is generally trying to do a good thing. They just disagree on what the good thing is. Uh, fortunately, that doesn't happen very often. I think a lot of people's experience with the Presbytery has been positive. I would say that our Presbytery, though we are struggling um, in terms of you know finances and numbers and some of those metrics, as are many Presbyteries in the country, ours is certainly not alone in that. Uh, we are in a good place administratively. Uh, I think, you know, our current general presbyter, the leadership at that level, I think we are strong. I think we are trying to move good directions. Um, it's just it's just a big job. Yeah, it very much is. And I think it's worth noting as we talk about authority and structure that say that there's a sort of a constitutional amendment level thing that happens at General Assembly, that we're going to change, for instance, uh, in our language, who can or who can't be ordained at a national level. If that gets passed at General Assembly, that then is sent to these presbyteries who must vote to approve it. And so there is very much this kind of regional representation that exists inside of our national structure that if if the people who went to General Assembly voted on a thing, that doesn't just mean it's suddenly law. That now needs to come under review of these presbyteries uh, where they get a say in it as well. Yeah. And I, I would say that I, th- it has been my experience, Michael, that when presbytery authority intervenes in congregations, it, it's either there's a moment where things are not going well, or a church finds itself kind of out on the cutting edge of something, and the presbytery's a little concerned, like wanting to build too big of building, or wanting to revolutionize some program, and the presbytery says, you know, okay, we need to, we need to talk this through, we all need to understand it, let's not rush ahead. And you know, that's probably rare. The more common place of conflict probably has to do with pastoral leadership and when things either are or aren't going. And and some of that is the nature of the com- the conversation you had a moment ago. When the presbytery gets a call, our pastor's not doing well, and it's the first they've heard of it, and the people calling them expect immediate intervention it, it's just going to be tense. It just doesn't work well. So the Presbytery does its best when it stays in relationships with churches, and it tries to do that. Um, tries to do that regularly. And I think that is sort of this regional Northwest Iowa kind of thing. You may be surprised at the next step in the chain. Um, we don't go to like pastor. 
Uh, instead, we go to congregation. And if you haven't been a Presbyterian your entire life, you might be surprised to know that all of the members of a church, so now we're at the level of like First Presbyterian Church in Spirit Lake, our congregation. When you are a member at First Presbyterian Church, you now have roles and responsibilities in the governance of this congregation that might surprise you. Yeah, so we probably would want to make sure when we say congregation, we actually mean a, a group within our congregation called the session. But the the guidance of the congregation falls to the local level. That's not the job of the presbytery. The presbytery doesn't tell us what programs to do. The presbytery doesn't tell us what Sunday school curriculum to use. The presbytery doesn't tell us whether to have youth group or recharge. All of that stuff is managed within the congregation. And and as it is, we have tremendous autonomy. We have tremendous freedom to be able to navigate those challenges uh, in the way that we think is best for us. Now, there are some points of contact. We have guidance from our Book of Order, our General Assembly, and our Presbytery about who we can ordain as officers, um, who should and shouldn't be ordained. We have some guidance about things like baptism. We have some guidance about things like weddings, though much of that has fallen on our own plates in the last couple of decades. But in regard to how we want to structure our budget, how much congregations want to pay their staff people, their pastors and other staff, that all falls within the congregation's decision-making. And the Presbytery has... I, I would argue nothing. Let's let's say little to nothing to say about it. It is simply the responsibility of the church to live out that part of its ministry. And the only places those things overlap, if a church wants to take a loan, the presbytery is going to need to approve it. Um, if the church wants to hire or fire a pastor, the presbytery is going to be involved in it. Um, but other than that, the large, the the bulk of what's going to happen in a church is governed at the level of the church. Right. And I do think that this maybe is a pretty nuanced line, so it may be difficult to ascertain all the differences here. The congregation and the session are both at the congregational level. They're, they both exist in-house, if you let me use that language. Maybe the best way to see that lived out in practice actually looks like our annual meeting in January, because what you have happening there is the session, which is the the elders elected from the congregation, they go and they work on a budget for the year that they have the power to approve. The, The elders of the church can say, this is the budget for the year, and this is what we're going to pay our a building manager, and this is what we're going to pay for lawn care this year. And all of that kind of stuff is handled by that group of people elected. But in that meeting in January, if you've been able to join us, what ends up happening is the congregation votes on the salaries for the pastors. That's not a responsibility that has been granted to these people elected on session. And so, it's a finite distribution of power between the people who are members here and the people that they have elected to rule in much of the other leadership of the congregation. I, it's impossible to know the exact proportion, but it, it's probably fair to say like 3% of the 
leadership is given it to the congregational members. There's not many things that the congregation members would vote on. A majority of that rests with the session, but there is a slight difference between the two. Yeah, so the limitations at the session level are the ability to hire and fire pastors um, and the ability to pay pastors. So I can't put a bunch of people, I, I can't try to engineer my people on the session who then say, hey, Clint, we're going to give you a big giant raise without the congregation knowing about it. Also, someone else can't put a bunch of people who don't like Clint on the session and say, we're getting Clint fired because those things have to have congregational approval. The other thing that the session can't do, that they do have tremendous freedom to manage the budget and the resources of the church, they cannot put a congregation in debt. So if we ever take a loan out for something, the congregation has to approve that so that the session can't do that autonomously. And and it balances the things that the session is able to do. They may not do things that encumber the congregation, both from a leadership perspective and from a financial perspective. Other than that, the session is really free to govern the church. And not only are they free, they're required, they're responsible for governing the church, for setting direction, for dealing with everything from personnel issues to building issues to uh, curriculum, Christian education issues to mission issues. And that all happens at the session level, hopefully with lots of communication and input from the congregation, but without congregational authority. So uh, if you've ever been non-denominational church, Baptist church, this works very differently. Something comes up, the congregation votes, it's 60 to 40, 60 wins. It's 70, 30, 70 wins. And that may be anything from let's start a preschool to let's fire the pastor. There are balances, there are doorways and checks in the Presbyterian system that don't allow that kind of, hey, we got the the right people at the right meeting, so every, we changed the name of the church. That That's not going to happen. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, it depending upon who you are, it's either checks and balances or hoops. Yeah. And they're both flip sides it's of both. the same exact coin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sometimes it feels like we need to do this simple thing, and there's four complicated steps to do it. And that can be a fair critique. Sometimes... Sure congregational growth and change is encumbered by all of these system structures, differences of responsibility. But you have to see it for what it was intended, and it was intended to be checks and balances on any one person exercising their own sinfulness over others. And that is just an open-eyed approach to giving authority to people, and yeah. that's part of a reflection of who we are. And maybe it's helpful to understand that we, we have some as we have this conversation, you could make a case that session would come above congregation yeah. in the hierarchy of government, but in the connection, the presbytery is really responsible to and with the congregation who is run by the session. And so you could even perhaps put these on the same lines. We weren't sure the best way to present them to you because they're, they're sort of meshed. It's it's impossible to distinguish congregation from session because session is part of congregation. I think what we wanted you to see is the the one glaring omission from this structure 
is pastor. In the Presbyterian system, pastors actually don't act as governmental figures. Um, Michael and I, though we enjoy tremendous freedom here and, and a great deal of support and encouragement, if you wanted to boil it down, we have very little authority to make things happen the way that we want, uh, other than relational authority. Um, we can't make dictates about this is what we're going to do. That's not our system. And pastors that try it are, are not only not being very Presbyterian, they're generally setting themselves up for some unhappiness. But you'll notice that nowhere on this list is pastor part of how we govern. Now, we work with the session. Obviously, we work with the congregation. We'll also work with the presbytery and maybe more occasionally the synod and even the general assembly. But as a rule, we're not part of the, we're not part of the, the, the hierarchy. Yeah, I don't want to be too meta here, Clint. But in some ways, this is actually the perfect example. Pastors aren't on the board. Pastors are here at the table trying to teach, explain, lead, encourage. I mean, we're doing what pastors do in the governmental system. We, we try to know and be competent at how we govern. We try to be a referee in the best sense at the table here, that all the voices at First Pres are, are heard, that the leadership... Uh, opportunities here are surveyed, that when session meets, they're resourced with what they need to lead well, that they can trust that the day-to-day operations of the church are being handled with utmost character, that pastoral care is delivered in such a way that they can seek to lead the congregation and not be active in the nitty-gritty of the day's life of a congregation. I think really Pastors seek to, at their best, be humble enough to know that it's not their job and also to fill in the gaps where they have gifts so that a church can thrive. Yeah, and I, I guess I would I guess I would say that obviously if there's some issue that involves the church or the church and the presbytery, we are likely to be in the thick of it. We are certainly <laughs> not going to be on the outside of that conversation. We're going to be in the middle of it, trying to work it out and and interpret back and forth. And we will definitely be a part of that process. But what we lack structurally is the kind of ability to make dictates. This is how we're going to worship. We have a worship committee, and we we enjoy a great deal of trust from them and a working relationship. And and yes, we're going to be able to make changes and do things. Um, this congregation in particular gives us a tremendous amount of freedom to navigate those because there's a lot of of trust at work in this place. But we, you don't have to worry that you show up and and Michael and I have just renamed the church or changed the budget or appointed different elders because we we didn't think the ones we had were voting for the things we wanted. We we don't have that authority in this kind of system. And I, I think, you know, clearly I'm not unbiased, but I that's to the best. When pastors get involved in the minutia of governing, it it gets messy and it it A removes 
the burden of doing what the church should be doing from the church. It's the church's job to run itself, not the pastor's. B, it it inserts the pastor in lots of places they probably don't need to be and ultimately may not be helpful. And C, it just it creates lots of opportunities for unhappiness and messiness. Yeah, I think my only other reflection on the pastoral relationship is the reality that the P, the Presbyterian system was made for churches to last hundreds of years. The idea is that the church is going to outlive the pastor. And that's a good thing. So the the church, this the core of the church should be strong and cultivated, and it should extend far beyond a person. And that is a great gift as someone who actually came out of a Christian tradition that was far more emphasized on the pastoral's leadership. When the pastor left the church, it sometimes meant the end of the church. There was just no inherent leadership expectation and structure inside the church. Um, so, on one hand, it's great for a church that it has this structure that must continue on far beyond one particular leader. And that's good for the pastor to know that this is ultimately Jesus's church, that this is this, the people have responsibility. And then on the flip side, you know, it's also good for pastors who are sometimes tempted um, to take more power than is their due to have checks and balances, that it's good for pastors to know um, that there's a limit that they uh, must not exceed, and there are consequences if they do. And especially if one is tempted by that, our structure has ways of keeping that in check. Yeah, and one final word, just because I, I think some of you here at FPC will be wondering, what about deacons? You know that we have deacons. Deacons exist to support ministry within a congregation. They're not part of governance. In other words, we don't ask our deacons to make decisions about the church, about the finances, any of that. We ask them to help us do the work of the church. So they're visiting people. They're caring for the sick. They're helping us with food ministries. They're they're involved in local resource, resourcing local ministries and local needs as well. But they, they do a phenomenal job and a very important one, but they're not a part of the hierarchy of our government. They don't make decisions about the life of the church. They try to enact the gospel from within and help us do the same in that direction. And so very important, but not part of our government. Yeah, I would only add to that, Clint, that there's really not a group I'm aware of in the church that has done more brainstorming on mm. how can we help these people. They, they come regularly to you, to I, to us, saying, hey, we think this is a place where we can reach out and help some people that we would have never seen. I think the deacons offers the congregation sort of a, a sheltered place, a group of people who have been tasked with, keep your eyes on the lost, the least, the hurting, how can we help them? And they do that job uh, with an incredible amount of effectiveness. Right, which which absolutely is in keeping with our governance. That's right. one of the ways we try to enact ministry, but not a part of our structure. They're, the deacons aren't going to have a vote on whether we should, you know, build something or or change the budget. They're, they're doing other stuff, and they're doing it really well, and we're grateful for them. But that's why they're not listed on our chart here. Okay, so don't look at your phone or device yet. We just crossed an hour, and you're still with us? That's an incredible feat. Thank if you for sticking with, with us. us yeah. <laughs> Maybe you're not. But, hey, listen, uh, we realize that on some level this is nuts and bolts, right? On another level, though, 
Oh, yes, Presbyterians have given a lot of thought to this structure, and it has served us well. In a, in a future conversation, we will be able to look under the hood a little bit, and we'll, we'll be able to identify some ways together in which that system has sometimes worked against us as we've sought to adapt to our context. But suffice it uh, for today, I, I think it's worth saying that really as an overall overarching theme, as, as people of faith, Presbyterians seek to give no single person too much power and seek to still be responsive to the leadership of Jesus Christ over the idea of mob rule. And to whatever extent we've been successful, we'll leave it to uh, someone else to judge. But that has very much been this thing that has been under the surface animating us, and that's how we get to where we are today. Yeah, and very few people are most excited about church governance. But at at our best, what we do is what we believe. There is a connection. It's an extension of our belief in how God works in the church and what the church is to do with how we practice things, how we vote, how we organize, how we do Christian education, how we worship. And so when that connection is is well-maintained, it gives us the best opportunity to to be faithful in all avenues and aspects of the church's life. We don't always get it right. We rarely get it all right. But when we do, it's really good. Friends, thanks for joining us today. It was a pleasure to be able to share this time with you. We look forward to seeing you next Wednesday when we release our next conversation, 9 o'clock Central Standard Time. But until then, uh, be blessed. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks.